In the eyes of many Protestants, the Reformation, started by Henry VIII after 1534, was unfinished. It resulted in a Protestant Church of England, with a level of ritual and teachings which left the doors open to the reinstatement of Catholic practices. Against this backdrop, the actions of Charles I after his accession in 1625 fueled the belief that he meant to reintroduce the old religion. Within a year, these fears were reinforced when the king appointed William Lord, a strong supporter of High Anglicanism, to be Archbishop of Canterbury. With the king's enthusiastic support, Lord embarked on reforms of church ritual and ceremony, including a new Book of Common Prayer and alterations to church architecture, such as the introduction of altar rails to separate the clergy from the congregation, which Protestants interpreted as significant moves towards Catholicism. In 1637, when Charles attempted to extend these reforms to Scotland, where he was also king, riots occurred in Edinburgh, and by 1639, open warfare had broken out as a Scots army crossed the border and defeated the English army at the Battle of Newburn. A disastrous chain of events had now begun, which three years later would lead directly to civil war in England and Wales and subsequently engulf Scotland. In this discussion with publisher Mike Gibbs, Emerita Professor in Early Modern History at Keele University, Anne Hughes, explains how religious divisions change the course of history. By the time Charles I came to the throne in 1625, the church remained but halfly reformed. But it's also important, of course, that this church had existed in its uneasy and perhaps unstable compromise for some 75 years. The Book of Common Prayer governed worship through the year with rhythms of the year repeated year after year. Bishops were an accepted part of the religious landscape and Calvinist preaching, which could be very forbidding and very depressing, was not to everyone's taste. The ritual elements of the Church of England had become familiar to many people. So although Puritans remained unhappy about the remnants, as they saw it, of popery in the church, there is also some support for the Church of England as it was currently constituted. And so there was even greater potential, perhaps, for divisions and conflict. James VI of Scotland succeeded as James I of England in 1603. Having been brought up in Presbyterian Scotland, Puritans had some hopes that he would encourage reform in the English church. But James had not been entirely happy with the Presbyterian church and was pleased to come to a kingdom where he was not just a member of the congregation, but the head as monarch of the Church of England. Discussions over some aspects of further reformation broke down with James's famous phrase, no bishop, no king, and many Puritans were disappointed. But James was a skilled compromiser and a skilled politician. Neither in England nor in Scotland 
did he press difficult reforms or difficult opposition measures on the church. He was himself someone who had intellectual pretensions as a moderate Calvinist theologian. And although he disappointed Puritans in England in some ways, and also had tried to modify the Presbyterian system in Scotland, in neither kingdom did he press difficult issues too far. He knew when to stop. His son was less politically astute, and Charles was temperamentally opposed to Calvinist divinity and very hostile to Puritanism, which he considered divisive, which it probably was, and subversive, which it was not necessarily the case. Potentially, Puritanism could be part of a reforming authority, but in its stress on the individual conscience, in its stress on obeying God rather than man, it did also have the potential to become subversive towards authority it disapproved of. So Charles was not someone to leave difficult issues alone. He was also someone who wanted, which James had never pressed, uniformity between his three kingdoms. In Ireland, he was unhappy about Puritan tendencies within the Irish Protestant establishment, where Puritanism was seen as a more effective counterweight to Catholic majority. And he was also very suspicious about the zealous Protestantism of the new Scottish and English settlers. He was very, very unhappy about the Scottish church. And it's important to remember again that he was not, in theory, head of the church in Scotland as he was in England. From quite early in his reign in England, Charles I became associated with what some people called Arminianism and others called Laudianism. Laudianism is the church programme associated with Archbishop William Laud, who became Archbishop in 1633, but had been in effective charge of the church since the later 1620s. Sorry, Arminianism is a term I'm not familiar with. Could you explain it? Arminianism is a European term named after a Dutch theologian, James Arminius, and it's about doctrine and was a significant challenge to the Calvinist doctrines I outlined earlier. Arminians laid more stress on the human effort, on human cooperation with God in achieving salvation. They were sometimes accused of preaching a salvation by works, by human effort, and of a belief in free will. Calvinists did not believe humans had free will. They were particularly hostile to a central doctrine of Calvinism, very important to English Calvinists, that the elect, that those chosen by God, could not finally and totally fall from grace. They could not finally and totally ever lose their position as those chosen or elected by God to salvation. They might falter, they might lapse into sin, but in the end, finally and totally, they would keep their grace. Arminianism was increasingly promoted 
by associates of Lord and Charles in the 1620s. It's also important, of course, that it doesn't just look like an attack within Protestantism. It looks a bit like popery, or for Puritans, it looks a lot like popery with its stress on free will and works. And it very immediately caused trouble between the king and his parliament. Charles had a sequence of parliaments in the 1620s, which ended in a lot of division over who was in power at the court, over taxation. But religion was a crucial issue. Charles I dissolved his last parliament of the 1620s in March 1629. When the king's messenger came to dissolve the parliament, the MPs held the speaker down in his chair by force and passed three emergency resolutions. Two of them were about taxation, but the first was about religion, and it read, Whosoever shall bring in innovation of religion, or by favour or countenance seek to extend or introduce popery, or Arminianism, or other opinion disagreeing from the true and orthodox church, shall be reputed a capital enemy to this kingdom and commonwealth. So this, what seems to us probably a technical issue about free will, about salvation, is something that can make you, in the view of the majority or in Parliament, a capital enemy, someone who deserves capital punishment to the kingdom and commonwealth. It's popery and it's seen as introducing an innovation. How was the thinking of Archbishop Lord? so-called Lordianism, expressed in the way churches looked and the way people worshipped in parishes across England and Wales. What was associated with the Lord was something called the beauty of holiness and also what he had was seen as an altar policy. The beauty of holiness first. Lord thought a church should be more than an arena for the sermon. No, it shouldn't just be a whitewashed auditorium with an enormous pulpit. He had a programme to make churches more beautiful with stained glass, with pictures, with perhaps statues, which again looks, if you're a Puritan, like popery, like seducing people and distracting from the importance of the word. There is a downgrading of preaching and a stress on a beautiful church and on ceremonies. And the stress on ceremonies is connected to an altar policy. The Holy Communion, as part of a Christian service, was seen for zealous Protestants as a commemoration, a reminder of Christ's sacrifice, modelled on his Last Supper with his disciples, where you shared, and in Protestantism, or in zealous Protestantism, the laity drank the wine and ate the bread as a reenactment of Christ's Last Supper with his disciples. For zealous Protestants, this was an important activity it encouraged you to be zealous into your religious duties. It reminded you that you were part of a Christian community. But it was not a sacred ritual that made any real difference to your salvation. Most Protestants did not really believe, I'm slightly oversimplifying, did not believe as Catholics did, 
that Christ was really absolutely present, that it was a mass. And so in the Elizabethan and early Stuart church, communion was administered in the middle of the church around a table. It might be that in the English church you were encouraged to kneel as you had in Catholicism, but lots of Puritans argued that you should probably sit as you would as a supper with your brethren in a normal time. But in the 1630s, Lord, backed by the king, forced all churches to turn their communion tables in the contemporary term altar-wise. They became sacred altars, not humble tables. They had to be kept permanently at the east end of the church and they had to have rails built in front of them which separated the laity kneeling for communion. This has three implications which are horrifying to many Protestants. First, it creates a separation between the laity and the clergy, which looks as if the clergy are returning to some special Catholic-type status as a special caste of men. So this sharper distinction between the laity and the clergy looks like popery. Secondly, it looks as if the sacraments taking part in this sacral ritual kneeling behind rails in front of an altar is more important or even as important was bad enough as preaching. It's not insignificant. Of course, this cost every parish in the land money and inconvenience. So the altar policy is very unpopular with many people, but is also very successful. It's an example of what an early modern government can do if it really puts its mind to it. But it's laying up trouble for the future. My third point is a social vision that contrasted a sort of royal sponsored festive notion of community to Puritan restraint, the sort of social vision associated with what's called the Book of Sports. The Book of Sports is properly called the King's Majesty's Declaration to His Subjects on Lawful Recreations. It was first issued just for Lancashire by James I, but James realised it would be unpopular with Puritans and left it at that. In 1633, Charles I renews his father's declaration and extends it to the whole country. And you'd think that there could be nothing wrong with lawful recreations. And the things that were meant were dancing either by men or women, archery, leaping, vaulting, May games, wits and ales, Morris dancing, maypoles and so on. The point about these was that they were to be lawful on the Sabbath day, on the Sunday. The Puritans believed, because they'd read it in the Bible, that you should keep the Sabbath, the Sunday in the Christian calendar, for religious duties. You should not engage in Morris dancing, leaping or vaulting or other. These recreations were not harmless or lawful. What the Lordian image was, was of sacred responsibilities around the church in the morning 
and lawful recreations, bringing the community together in the afternoon. Again, most of us would probably rather play sports than have extra sermons in the afternoon. But to Puritans, this looked like a profanation of the Sabbath, treating the Sabbath as if it didn't matter. It was almost blasphemy. It was polluting the Sabbath with dangerous and self-indulgent activities. Richard Baxter, the famous Puritan minister of Kidderminster, in his autobiography many years later, said one of the main reasons why people supported Parliament in 1642 was because the book that was published for recreations on the Lord's Day made them think that the bishops concurred with the profane, with people who didn't care about religion. Another Midlands minister, a man called Thomas Dugard, who was a very, very moderate Puritan, who stayed in the church throughout all the comings and goings of the 17th century, was accused after the Restoration of preaching that the Book of Liberty, by which it meant the Book of Sports, which was set forth by the late king, was the cause of all the war and bloodshed in this nation, which, if this king should tolerate the like, which, God forbid, he should, then we might very well say, farewell, England. So you could have a talk on the causes of the Civil War that said the Book of Sports caused the Civil War. It's obviously an oversimplification, but it's one thing that should not be forgotten because it made them worry that the king was not defending a true religious vision. He was siding with profanity and anti-Christian activities. While this was occurring, there were significant developments on the continent which spilled over into religious divisions in Britain. These exacerbated the friction between Catholics and Protestants. Can you briefly explain the impact of these events here in Britain? Looking back at the 17th century from the 20th or the 21st, we might assume that England was always destined to remain basically Protestant. But 17th century people, looking at the developments in continental Europe in the 1620s or the 1630s, would have been much less certain about the security of English Protestantism. If you looked at developments in continental Europe, which we came to call the Thirty Years' War, beginning in 1618, to a large extent, a significant extent, that was a war of religion. And in that war, it looked as if Catholicism was everywhere winning, was everywhere advancing into areas that had been staunchly Protestant in the 16th century, such as Poland or Bohemia, the modern-day Czech Republic. English and Scottish interests were deeply engaged in the Thirty Years' War because a central victim of the Catholic advance was James I's daughter, Charles I's sister, Elizabeth of Bohemia. Elizabeth Stuart, she was born, had married a leading German prince, Frederick the Elector Palatine, in 1613. In 1619, he was offered the crown of Bohemia, usually held by the Austrian Habsburg Emperor, a Catholic. Leading figures in Bohemia wanted a Protestant ruler, offered the crown to Frederick, and he unwisely accepted it. 
He lasted barely a year. Zealous English Protestants, Puritans, from 1619 urged James and then Charles to intervene on behalf of European Protestants and to at least restore Frederick and Elizabeth to their Palatinate lands. 1620s, England engaged in some half-baked and unsuccessful interventions on their side in continental Europe, and they had some even less successful interventions to help French Protestants, who were also under attack. But after troubles with his Parliament, and Charles could not wage a war without a Parliament, so he remained aloof from the European conflicts in the 1630s. And because his own family was so deeply involved and the cause of religion seemed to be in danger, this international failure explains the fear of popery. England's failures abroad were connected always to the machinations of Catholics at home. Why wasn't England doing its duty for the Protestant cause? It was the king's advisers who were secret or sometimes open Catholics. So courtiers, members of the court, were often blamed for England's failure. And of course, one particular target was Charles I's Catholic Queen, foreign Catholic Queen. In the early 1620s, James I had thought that if perhaps Charles married a Spanish princess, you could do a deal with the Spanish Habsburgs to at least get the Palatinate back. Charles went to Spain to see what the Spanish princess was like, but came back without agreeing to a Spanish match. And in 1623, the failure of the Spanish match had been met with nationwide celebrations bell-ringing feasts as he returned unmarried. But shortly after his accession, Charles had married a Catholic French princess, Henrietta Maria, with whom he had a close, devoted relationship. Charles's uxoriousness was widely seen as a weakness, not a strength. It aroused much suspicion. One Puritan parliamentarian woman writer, Lucy Hutchinson, wrote... Wherever male princes are so effeminate as to suffer women of foreign birth and different religions, or to intermeddle with the affairs of state, it is always found to produce sad desolations. And there were some high-profile conversions of people close to the Queen. The Queen had a Catholic chapel. So there is a great fear of popery at home and abroad within England. So far, we've largely focused on England. But am I correct that it was events in Scotland and the conflict known as the Bishops' Wars that really started the escalation of events which finally resulted in the start of the Civil Wars? It was in Scotland that the crisis of Charles' monarchy began. The attempt to impose an English-style prayer book on the Scottish Church was met by widespread immediate riots and the very quick erosion of Charles's authority throughout the kingdom. A fully Presbyterian church was rapidly established and approved by a Scottish parliament that continued to meet despite the disapproval of the king. The Scots organised for war and became known as the Covenanters because all this mobilisation through the church, through the parliament and the raising of an army 
was brought about through the spread of a national covenant or oath throughout the kingdom. This was an oath to be taken by all adult men, and it was an oath not of loyalty to the king, but a banding together of the population. They didn't make an oath to be loyal to the king. They made an oath to everyone else who had taken the oath, an oath to each other to defend true religion. Although they claimed to be loyal to the king, they clearly presented a conditional view of monarchy. The king's first duty throughout Scottish post-Reformation history was to defend true religion. And if a king didn't defend true religion, then it was implied and was carried out in practice. It was legitimate to wage war against his person. So the Scots, on two occasions, 1639 and 1640, raise war against the King Charles I in the cause of the true reform religion. 1639, a peace was quickly made. In 1640, there was a successful Scots invasion and a Scots army occupied most of the north of England. But rather than rallying to the crown, the Scots occupation enabled the English opposition to press for a parliament. And it was only through the calling and securing of a parliament that the king could raise taxation and could raise loans in the city of London that would enable peace to be made with the Scots. So nothing like the precipitate dissolution, cancelling of the parliament that happened in 1629, could happen in the parliament that was called in the autumn of 1640 in England. And because it passed a law that the king agreed to, that it could only dissolve itself, the king couldn't dissolve it, this parliament actually becomes known as the Long Parliament. Then in 1641, there was a bloody rebellion, which pitted the often Gaelic-speaking and Catholic Irish against the English Welsh and Scottish Protestant settlers. This uprising was certainly very graphically reported in the London news books. What effect did this have on the situation in England? Just under a year after the first meeting of the Long Parliament, getting down to reforming church and state, the Parliament in England, there was an Irish Catholic rising in October 1641. The Irish Catholic Rising of October 1641, prompted in part by Catholic fears of the Puritan domination in England and the Presbyterian success in Scotland, is the worst nightmare of zealous Protestants come to life. Some of the Irish rebels even claim to be saving Charles I from his subversive, heretical Puritan enemies. Given the colonial attitudes to the Irish as uncivilised and their Catholicism, an Irish Catholic rising is, as I've said, the ultimate popish plot. It really concentrated the minds of the English Puritan opponents of Charles, who were completing at that time a declaration called the Grand Remonstrance, a summing up of the evils of Charles's reign 
and also proposing parliamentarian remedies. It's probably worth saying also that the Irish Catholic Rising came also at a time when perhaps Puritan zealousness was leading to something of a recovery for the king. You know, the development of people who thought that reform had perhaps gone far enough and were beginning to coalesce around a royalist identity. But for the Puritan opposition, the Irish rising brought issues to a head, meant that you needed, for instance, to raise military force to defeat it. And that raised the issue of whether you could trust the king with the control of an army. But the Grand Remonstrance, which was passed in November 1641, presented to the King on December the 1st, 1641, summed up the misdeeds of Charles's personal rule and proposed remedies. They argued that the misdeeds of the personal rule basically were the product of a popish plot. The declaration said, The multiplicity, sharpness and malignity of those evils under which we have now many years suffered are fermented and cherished by a corrupt and ill-affected party. The root of all this mischief we find to be a malignant and pernicious design of subverting the fundamental laws and principles of government upon which the religion and justice of this kingdom are firmly established. It's a conspiracy theory, if you like. Now, law and religion are joined together because within this framework... Of course, papists would have to destroy the English law if they were going to introduce Catholicism. They were inextricably bound up together. They went on. The actors and promoters hereof have been the Jesuited papists who hate the laws as the obstacles of that change and subversion of religion which they so much long for. So Jesuited papists, the Jesuits are the sort of shock troops, the foreign religious order who support the advance of Catholicism in the 16th and 17th century. So they're the worst, the first lot. Secondly, the bishops and the corrupt part of the clergy who cherish formality and superstition to support their own ecclesiastical tyranny, superstition, altars, ceremonies and so on, Such counsellors and courtiers, as for private ends, have engaged themselves to further the interests of some foreign princes. So there's this wide-ranging conspiracy. Catholics, bishops and the corrupt part of the clergy, self-interested counsellors and courtiers close to the king and close to the queen. Antipopery has been a broad theme in English religious culture, Since Elizabeth's reign, at least, there have been popish plots before and people usually had a sort of chronology that took in the coming of the Spanish Armada in 1588 and the gunpowder plot in 1605, both, of course, miraculously defeated with the help of God's providential intervention. The Armada dispersed by the weather and the gunpowder plot uncovered through a chance discovery. But there is a crucial, obvious, but massively significant difference between these earlier popish plots and the popish plots summed up in the Grand Remonstrance, which is that the previous plots were directed against Protestant rulers, godly Protestant rulers. The crucial difference in 1641 
is that at the very least, the popish plots in Britain and Ireland are associated with the court, the king's closest associates, and it may include the activities of his own wife. So that's at least people close to the king are involved. Even more alarming, it was widely suspected that the king himself might be deliberately encouraging popish plots in order to recover his position against his godly Puritan opponents who were defending true religion. And this, as I hope I've shown, was not mere paranoia. The erection of altars in most parish churches, the suppression of godly preaching and the pollution of the Sabbath with frivolous pastimes, all this made it very possible that the king himself was not on God's side, that he was not a defender of the true Protestant religion. So in the early 1640s, anti-popery did not enhance or strengthen monarchical authority, but eroded it. Anti-popery was a crucial dissolver of the habits of obedience. Habits of obedience in parts of the Bible were stressed. But where the king was not someone who could be relied on to defend true religion, then anti-popery could justify armed resistance of the king in defence of true religion and inextricably connected with true religion in defence of English laws and liberties. Thanks, Professor Hughes, for giving us such a succinct and clear overview. We hope you've enjoyed this programme. The previous episode in this three-part series is available now. Professor Hughes discusses how the unfinished and incomplete Protestant Reformation of the 16th century bitterly divided the three kingdoms of the British Isles, England, Scotland and Ireland. These fundamental differences had disastrous consequences for each of them. The final programme explores how and why Protestantism fragmented during the Interregnum and how groups such as the Levellers and the Quakers contributed to the failure of the Republic and the Protectorate. All these programmes and many more titles are available at our website, worldturnedupsidedown.co.uk, as well as Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While visiting the website, do register for our newsletter, The World Turned Upside Down to learn about other currently available and future programmes by distinguished academic historians of the 17th century.